following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Hear ye, hear ye. This is the hallmark phrase of the ancient newsman, the town crier or bellman, as it was called in England. In the days before public address systems and radio and television and the internet, the town crier was responsible for making official announcements in the city square, the marketplace, really anywhere people tended to gather. And he had an important job to do as an official of the king. If something was going on in your country or your kingdom and the town crier did not let you know about it, then you just wouldn't know about it. And one of the most important announcements the town crier could make was to announce a transfer of power in the realm from one king or ruler to another. In this sort of announcement, the town crier would function as what I'm calling here this morning a kingdom herald. A kingdom herald, heralding the kingdom and the king. On our passage today in Matthew chapter 3, we meet the herald of the kingdom of heaven, this John the Baptist. He's mentioned in all four Gospels and given considerable uh, real estate in these accounts of Christ's life. And in each Gospel, he announces the coming of King Jesus and of Christ's kingdom or kingship. In his proclamation as Kingdom Herald, John continues what what we looked at last week, and that is the, the revelation of or unveiling of the identity of King Jesus, who exactly he is, and then also now the nature of this king's kingdom, the nature of Christ's kingship, what it means that he's king in your life and in my life, in the life of ancient Israelites, in the life of the world. Specifically, John tells us this morning that this king, King Jesus the Christ, is coming to bless and to judge. So what I'll seek to show you uh, this morning from these 12 verses is that Christ's kingship calls for your repentance and the fruit thereof. Christ's kingship calls for your repentance and the fruit thereof. We'll look at this under two headings. The first six verses give us the call for your repentance. And then verses 7 to 12 give us uh, an explanation of what it looks like, what the fruit of your repentance looks like. So the call for your repentance and the fruit of your repentance. First, the call of your repentance. In these first six verses, John by his preaching ministry, uh, gives us why you need to repent, why the call has authority, and then how you should repent. First, looking at why you need to repent in the first two verses, it sets the stage for us in this phrase, now in those days. It's not referring to the days when Jesus initially settled in Nazareth with Joseph and Mary, where our previous passage Left off, but just generally speaking, in those days when Christ the King was coming, breaking into the world, then John the Baptist came.
preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so first, we need to note something about this John the Baptist. He wasn't a self-appointed prophet. He actually had legitimacy in two different ways, and we'll look at this a bit more, but it's important to mention here, Luke's gospel tells us that he was, in fact, of the tribe of Levi. And so he had a, a function in that tribe to be a teacher of Israel. And so he's in that sense called, but also he, um, he's directly called by God and the words are placed in his mouth. Uh, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this word preaching that's used for us is descriptive of a proclamation. It's... It's a special message that's been handed to you to then re-present before others. And that's what John is doing. But why does he do it in the wilderness of Judea? Matthew's gospel is full of details about where certain things happen. And as I think I've made clear in the last couple of weeks, they're very important and significant. Why do certain things happen in Bethlehem and not in Jerusalem? Why Nazareth and not in Judah. And now here again, he goes and he preaches out in a remote desert place rather than in the heart of the public life of Israel. He goes out into the wilderness of Judea. In doing this, John's ministry is is fulfilling a prophecy, as we'll see from Isaiah chapter 40, but it's also making a message about the moral state of the people of Israel. And I think this is something that you and I can relate to living in our debased age today. They existed, they lived in a moral wilderness. And so John graphically represents that by planting himself in the wilderness of Judea and preaching a message of repentance from that position. What are the marks of our moral wilderness today? idolatry, of money, of physical gratification, of comfort, of of consumerism, of statism, of all these different issues. We won't go into defining each one, but Jesus in his ministry to come as king is going to take to task every single one of these idolatries, and John is preparing the way. And his message of repentance here is really a message of get ready. Because notice what he says. He tells them to repent in this moral wilderness. But then he says, for or because, since the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is right here on our doorstep. Something momentous is about to happen. And in this, John sees two aspects. He sees an opportunity now to welcome the king with open arms. So he says, repent. But he, in saying repent, sees a problem. And that is, if you don't, this king is not coming to bless, but is coming to judge. And so in the location of John's ministry, and in the basic essential message here, we see not only a moral wilderness, but an imminent judgment that's coming against even the people of God. And this, my friends, is why you need to repent, John says, if he were preaching to us today. Now, our situation this morning is not all that different 
from the situation of the people of Judah. Yes, we have the benefits of the closed canon, of, of the full New Testament and Old Testament brought together. We have the benefits of the Spirit being at work in the world, and we are far away from ancient Palestine. But at root, the human problem has not changed. And that is that we need to make way for the coming of Christ. Things must be set in order, for he is coming to bless those who welcome him and to judge those who reject him. And that's the message of John here. But why should we listen to this guy? Why at all should we give any heed to what this man says? Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Matthew tells us why. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. He's not just painting a picture for us, so he certainly does that in John's outfit and his diet. But Matthew is telling us why we should listen to John, why this call to repent has any authority at all. There's two parts to this. First, in verse 3, we see that John is coming in fulfillment of prophecy. We read Isaiah chapter 40, and that describes for us what this kingdom herald is doing. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, you might have noticed if you were paying attention during the reading that this phrase, in the wilderness, can mean or be attached to one of two things. Is it that the voice is crying in the wilderness? Or is it that the voice is saying, make a way in the wilderness? So the Hebrew takes the latter position, the Greek takes the former position, but they're not at odds with one another. Because he's in the wilderness saying, make a way through this wilderness. The point is that this voice, this herald, this preacher, is saying to you, tear down the strongholds of sin. By repentance, prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ. In your moral wilderness, make a way, grade the uneven ground, as it were, that Christ might come in his fullness, recognizing that you're welcoming him. And this prophetic fulfillment is one reason why we should pay attention to this call. Why it is this voice comes with authority. He's wearing the uniform of the town crier. He's not a Johnny-come-lately yelling, the sky is falling, but rather he is somebody to whom we must pay heed. But then Matthew inserts this detail about John in verse 4, relating John to um, the prophets of old, particularly Elijah, whom King Ahab referred to as a hairy man, probably talking about the kind of garb he would wear. But Elijah certainly had a leather belt around his waist. And there are a couple aspects here um, that we should flesh out. First of all, the prophets of old in dressing in an uncomfortable camel hair cloak or robe with a cheap leather belt holding it together really visualize for us that they are fully committed, devoted to one task. And that is preaching the message that God has given them to preach, this extraordinary message. And we, we can take that in and of itself, but also in relation to the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, what Matthew is showing us is that this John comes with the full authority of Israel's greatest prophet. 
the prophet Elijah. And so you need to pay attention to him. When you come into into the worship service each Sunday morning and evening, or whenever you encounter God's Word, are you coming as one aware that you are in fact reading or hearing or listening to an authoritative message which God is sending to you? Or do you come casually? Are you coming merely to hear the, the conversation of a friend? Are you studying it as a textbook? Or are you putting yourself under it as the king's decree, the royal message? If you're in that medieval town square and the the king's herald comes and he says, King John has passed away, his son King Charles is now the king, and you say, nah, do you think there might be some ramifications, might be some consequences? dire consequences to rejecting the king's message. Well, Matthew is establishing for us here that this is an authentic message. You must give heed to it. Not just for the people of ancient Israel, but for you and for me. When we hear God's word read and preached, when we read it ourselves, we must regard it as the king's royal decree. And pay heed to it with all seriousness, because it demands something of us. And we'll look at that now, how you should repent pictured in verses 5 and 6. The English doesn't pick up on it for, uh, for us, but the Greek changes tenses here. And now we go from a mode of reporting what's happening to now being brought right into the situation. Matthew is going from uh, telling us what is going on in John's ministry to now showing us what is happening in John's ministry, showing us how it is we should respond, what repentance looks like. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. The sense here is that immediately, as John began his ministry, the people of Jerusalem of the surrounding villages in Judea and all around the Jordan River in that district or that province, that county, if you will, start streaming out to him by perhaps the thousands or tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, we don't know. And they're going out to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is thus why he's called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, the one who baptizes. And as they're going... These people, these multitudes, these crowds, they seem to understand their need because they come confessing their sins. So two things are told to us. First, this is how you should repent immediately, without delay. As soon as the call hits your ears, you should turn and go. That is the picture that's given to us in Matthew's Gospel. But then the second thing is that in this repentance, you're seeking refuge in the care of a good king. Yes, there's a message of judgment in this passage. That might even be the emphatic note to set off the alarm bells. But remember Isaiah chapter 40, what we read? Comfort ye, O comfort my people. 
This is a message of, of salvation and deliverance from sin. Who is this Jesus? Why is he named that? Because he is coming to save his people from their sins. And the people understand that. That's at the heart of John's message here. And so they're coming not just immediately and not out of terror or fear or compulsion, but coming to seek refuge in a good king's protection. And refuge from what? Well, they're confessing their sins. They're seeking refuge from the curse, power, consequences of their sins. Whenever we bring members into the visible church, and I believe that is what's happening here in John's baptism, is marking out people visibly for visible church membership and union with Christ, anticipating Christ's ministry. But as, whenever we do that, whenever we receive members here, what are those vows communicating? One of the very first ones is that we confess that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We need the saving power of Jesus Christ. Now we'll see in the, the next six verses two groups of people who come with other motives and John calling them out for that and instructing us by that. But let's pause here and consider the, the poor, the politically oppressed, the, the down and out multitudes of the people of Judea, eager for deliverance in the wilderness of sin. This is to be our heart. When we hear in the midst of confusion in our culture, in our own minds and everything, when we hear the clarion call that the king is coming, recognizing that this king is a savior and a deliverer, our repentance is to be eager and not fearful in the worldly sense, but eager and earnest and, and expectant and hopeful and joyful as we come saying, yes, I'm a sinner. Save me, Lord. Like a, like a little chick waiting for its mama bird to come back to the nest, knowing that something good is about to come. That is what our repentance unto life looks like. So my friend, you're not repenting from one form of slavery to another form of slavery. This isn't the, the changing of the guard from the, the Babylonian oppressors to the Persian oppressors to the Greek oppressors to then the Roman oppressors. No, this is turning from the oppression of sin to the liberty that's found in service to a good king who is looking out for your life. When you think of repentance, do you think of that, of goodness, of life, of joy, of delight in God? Or do you have a concept of repentance that is twisted and dark and seems like, oh, now I have to do X, Y, and Z, and I don't get to do this, that, and the other? I think in our culture, this word repent has a negative connotation. But what I want to put before you here from John's ministry and the response to it is that repentance is a blessing and a boon to your soul. As such, then, there's one other point. It's not something that you can conjure up on your own. You can't bring it about by sheer force of human will. It's a gift from God. It's an evangelical grace. 
which means it is a gift, a blessing that comes about by the proclamation of the good news. And so, yes, John and Zach and Dr. Piper and other preachers of the word come up and they say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sins. Embrace Jesus Christ with full of imperative force, calling you to do something, inviting you to come to the waters, persuading you even to do these things. This is the mode of dress that we have to adopt as preachers. And yet, trusting as we do so that the Spirit will work through that proclamation of the gospel, He will turn your hearts. Christ is in control, operating through and by His Holy Spirit, united with the Word. So this repentance is a gift. So let us all the more rejoice in it and not see it as a burden. Now, we've considered John's call for repentance, why you need to repent, why that call has authority, and then how you should repent immediately, seeking refuge with delight and assurance of God's love. But now, we need to consider what John gets into in verses 7 to 12, the fruit of your repentance. John brings a message to the big men who show up. Look at verse 7 with me. The tense in the Greek shifts again. We go back to reporting mode. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Harsh words for some pretty important fellows. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were within that Old, um, Old Testament kind of or, or Second Temple uh, community of the Jews after the exile. These are the, the two groups that really rise to the fore as the leaders of the people. They make up the senators, if you will, the Sanhedrin, their Congress, their council. And they're the ones that all the other people look up to. And there's a lot to unpack here, a lot of directions where we could go and looking at how John addresses them. But a few things you need to understand. These two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, they were kind of like, I almost hesitate to do this, but it's a good illustration of it, because we are in a two-party system in our politics, but it's kind of like Republicans and Democrats, especially today. They never really agree about anything, at least not in public. They're always fighting. They're at odds with one another. They have different agendas for the nation of Israel. And these Pharisees, on one hand, are something like the theologically conservative party. They took the Torah, and then they set a bunch of rules around it to help them to keep it. And they like to be known for their righteousness before men. And Jesus is going to blast them for that throughout Matthew's gospel. But then the Sadducees, they're a bit more influenced by the Greek culture around them. They're more rationalistic. They deny the resurrection, for example. They get really interested in Greek philosophy and they seek to bring that into the religious life. They have more of a relationship with the Roman government and so they have more wealth and, and, and outward beauty and prestige. But both of them are highly regarded within their society. Again, the big men, the, the leaders of the culture. Put yourself in their shoes, if you will, for a second. I know not many of us have, or not any of us have really political influence or social advantages or anything, but 
If you're a leader in a community and then you see out in the desert place, out in the suburbs, somebody attracting crowds of people, might you think, how can I get in on that? I need to make sure I maintain my position. And so they go out to John to get baptism for themselves. And are they going confessing their sins? I think not. Or else John wouldn't have addressed them this way. But they go out like vipers, full of outward beauty, but with venom under their tongues, seeking to destroy. And what John says to them in addressing them as he does in verse 7, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's saying to them, your nature nature is wicked. Do you know that as you come to me? Or are you coming for a different reason? Are you motivated to come into the church for some other cause? To have influence over others? To have a little uh, a pet ministry, if you will, here? If that's the case, then you're not coming as one who is seeking a place at the Father's table, but you're coming rather as the offspring of a serpent. Genesis 3.15 calls, and we've mentioned it several times in this series already, The seed of the serpent. It's essentially what John says. You seed of the serpent. You offspring of Satan. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, the interesting thing here about his second statement, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Is John, I think, genuinely expresses astonishment and marvel at the fact that they came at all. Though they may have come with false motives, yet still, if you come to the waters of baptism, you're coming, at least outwardly, fleeing from the wrath. There's something of repentance in that motion. And so what we can take from this ourselves is John is, it's as if he's saying to us, your nature is wicked by birth. From conception, you were conceived in sin. Who told you to flee? Where did that impulse come from. This repentance is marvelous. It's a wonderful, almost miraculous motion. And so then he moves into verse 8. Therefore, bearing all this in mind, that you're wicked and yet coming to me, ostensibly repenting, I say this to you, therefore bear fruit in keeping with or worthy of repentance. If in fact you have been changed from a brood of vipers, into sons of the Most High God, then you will bear fruit in keeping with that change. Do you understand what John is saying? There is a necessary outcome to repentance that goes beyond mere repentance. Repentance signals the change, the transformation, but then the effects of that change and transformation would be like grafting uh, one kind of of tree or, or branch to another, it starts to bear new fruit in keeping with the tree unto which it was grafted or knit into. You must be remade then to bear fruit, John says. You cannot remain a brood of vipers and bear any fruit. This water baptism will do no good. And so he continues in verses 9 and 10 to say, you must have faith then to bear fruit. Look at what he says to them. Do not suppose 
that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. This was the great boast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We are the descendants of Abraham. For I say to you, because this is what I say to you, that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He uses two images here as he discusses this whole Abraham uh, heritage um, idea that would have been on the minds of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. First, he uses the, images, uh, the image of stones. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what this means. But at, at heart, the main idea is that you must have faith in order to bear fruit, keeping with repentance. You can't bear that fruit because you have a particular physical heritage. It doesn't have to do with anything that's visible or outward, but it's something that's worked into your heart. And the risk here is that if you don't bear fruit, if you don't have this faith, your life will be wasted and King Jesus is coming to judge. But what are the stones then that he uses as the point of comparison? It could be that John just points out the rocky soil around him and he says, oh, look at all these rocks. You see all those? God can bring sons of Abraham out of them. They're not descended from Abraham. Obviously, they're rocks. But God can remake them and grant them faith. It could be that he's just using a, a picture there. It could be that he's referring to Gentiles. A lot of commentators think this is the case. Yes, you may be Jews, the children of Abraham, but God can raise up children of Abraham from the nations, which you regard as worthless, as less than stones and rocks. I don't think that's the case, because he says these stones as if they're right around, and we're not told that there are any Gentiles in the midst of the multitude. What I think he's referring to is this, and this may hit us right in the heart, because we tend to be a prideful people and look down on others, even our neighbors. He says, you see all these people, the poor, the outcast, the desperate from Jerusalem and the villages, those who are covered in dust and dirt, who don't have fine clothes, who are working in the fields all day under the hot Judean sun, from these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Yeah, you might think you're gold and silver among the people, among the church, the people of God. But he can raise up great from the weak and the poor and the contrite of heart. Isn't this Jesus' message? When we get to the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the, the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see the face of God. Not blessed are the socially important. Blessed are the theologically and philosophically sophisticated. Not blessed are those with great attainments in education or money or whatever. But blessed are the common folk who recognize their need for a savior and come with all haste in repentance to the waters. This is John's message. You must have faith to bear fruit. Jesus comes for rich and for poor with the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message mediated here through John. And the, the risk here is relayed in a second illustration. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the message to the Pharisees and Sadducees there is, if you're truly repentant, 
You will bear good fruit, and that heavenly gardener, our king, will tend to you and will preserve you. But if you don't bear fruit, you will prove to be a dead tree, and he will chop you down and throw you into the fire, into the waste bin. Well, he moves on into verses 11 and 12. And he makes one final uh, point here, as it were. You must prepare for judgment to bear fruit. You must prepare for judgment if you're going to bear fruit. In verse 11, as for me, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove or even carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. When he says, as for me here, he speaks for gospel ministers and officers in the church through every age. What we do here, we can't, by our power, touch your hearts or change the hearts of men. That is the work of someone mightier than us whom we merely point to, and that's Jesus Christ. And so even our water baptism. When we pour the water and sprinkle the heads of our babies, when we baptize those who come, uh, who come to us as adult converts and believers, what we're doing is we're signaling that you are now members of the visible church, but the invisible reality, the inward heart change, needs to be brought about by what's called the baptism with, not of, but with the Holy Spirit and fire, what Jesus Christ does. And Jesus does this in our uh, New Testament account in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost, where visibly tongues of flame hover over the heads of his disciples as they are then sent out for a worldwide gospel advance. But the point here is that my ministry, Dr. Piper's ministry, the ministry of this church, this pulpit, it's merely preparing you for Christ's work in you. Yes, this is Christ's ministry. This is Christ's pulpit. He is working through here. But it's my point is, no man can touch your heart. I saw this week a, um, a quote from Karen Ellis, who is, um, her husband's a PCA teaching elder, and, and she's, I think she's a sociologist um, of religion, and, and it was a really, I don't agree with everything that I, that I read from anybody, but this particular quote was very good. It touches on American culture at a real sensitive spot, and that is celebrity culture is, is a, I'm paraphrasing here, celebrity culture is antithetical to the gospel. It is uniquely poisonous to the Christian faith. Because what does that reflect? When you get wrapped up in a celebrity preacher or a celebrity teacher, anybody, you're starting to put your trust in man and not in God. My friends, it is good to appreciate men who bless us by their teaching and their preaching. It is, it is okay, it's fine for even men to have massive churches and big publishing ministries, but don't ever get wrapped up in a personality. What has happened with James McDonald and Mark Driscoll and so many others before them and surely what will happen after them as well. It should come as a cautionary tale to us. Don't trust in the ministry of men. Trust in the ministry of the Son, of Jesus Christ himself, who uniquely is able to handle your hearts. And that's what John is saying here. There is one coming after me who's mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. 
John does this. He's very careful. He doesn't say the Messiah is coming because he knows that the people would have heard that and thought about a political deliverance and they would have gotten all wrapped up in confusion. But he says, one is coming that is mightier than I. It's euphemistic, but he's anticipating Jesus Christ. He is anticipating the Messiah who will deliver even Pharisees and Sadducees who are sincere in repentance from their sins. And then finally, In this last verse, he ends on a note of warning, a threat of judgment. His winnowing fork, it's like his pitchfork, is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Children, where do you find a barn? On a farm, (laughs) not in a mine, not in a factory. You find a barn on a farm. So John's using an illustration from farming. And what the farmer would do is, as he would get the grain from the corn and he would bring all of his wheat into, uh, into, and barley in, in the ancient Near East into his uh, workspace, his threshing floor, he would get it all up in a pile, but it would be mixed in with chaff, with the husks. And so he'd take his, his pitchfork and he'd throw it up in the air and the wheat or the corn or the barley, whatever, is heavier. It would fall to the ground and the chaff would blow away. And then he'd get it into two neat piles. He would take the, the usable material. He'd put it into his storehouse to then eat later or sell. But then the chaff, which blew over here, he'd get into a pile and he'd throw it into a fire. And it would just burn up. So John's using this picture then to say any of those who claim to be repentant and yet do not bear the fruit which meets with or keeps with repentance, will be as the chaff burned up, annihilated, destroyed in the fire. But note, he gives a qualifier, the unquenchable fire. It's a fire which never ends. This is a sober warning which John gives to these Pharisees and these Sadducees, and by extension to us. Because this word is here for us, just as surely as it was for them. My friends, if you do not repent, if you do not bear fruit keeping with repentance, then your destiny is everlasting torment in the fires of hell. Is this a harsh word? Absolutely. But is it true? Yes. But the flip side, in this verse, King Jesus will come to sort out his church on judgment day, the evil from the good, the righteous from the wicked. But in that sorting, he doesn't merely consign those who reject him to hell, but he takes those who accept him, who come to him in faith and repentance, born of the Holy Spirit as a gift from him in the first place, He takes them and brings them into his garner, into his barn, into his storehouse, where they're safe and they're protected, and there's no destruction. This is the message of John's gospel. It is good news that the king is coming, but that's not really good news to those who will be judged. It is really good news to those who will trust in him out of their need for forgiveness. So John comes, hear ye, hear ye. The king is is coming, the kingdom is at hand. He comes to judge and he comes as well to bless. The kingdom herald makes his proclamation in advance of the king's public appearance. We'll consider that next week with Christ's baptism. But he tells us something about this king and his kingdom. 
that we've unfolded this morning. Namely, John tells us that the kingdom, and particularly judgment, is at hand. What John didn't know, because as a prophet, he would have seen this future movement kind of compressed. What he didn't know was that out of God's grace, the judgment, the final judgment, it's remote. I mean, we're 2,000 years after the fact, and Christ hasn't yet come back in judgment. But in this, uh, in this coming of Christ that we've been considering these last few weeks, He's coming to bless and to deliver and to save and to make His goodness known. Regardless, the judgment is real and it is urgent. Now is the time for repentance as the kingdom is at hand. Now is the time to pledge allegiance to this newborn king lest you be crushed under the awful weight of his righteous judgment on the last day. Indeed, we have seen from John's preaching ministry here that Christ's kingship calls for your repentance and the fruit thereof. But through the course of Christ's ministry, and John chapter 12 puts this better than anywhere else, we read that if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, this is Christ speaking, I do not judge him presently, for I did not come presently to judge the world, but presently to save the world. This is the great message of the gospel in Jesus' ministry. He has come to save you from this judgment, from this unquenchable fire, from the wrath, His righteous wrath of God. For he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him already. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Jesus and John are not pit against one another. John is a faithful town crier. He's a faithful kingdom herald. And he gives a true warning that Jesus then will back up through his ministry. I come in grace now, he says. Receive me. Come unto me, ye weary. For if you do not, if you do not repent, if you do not bear fruit, keeping with repentance, then judgment is coming. It's a sober reminder, but it's also a glorious promise that salvation full and free is found in this Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.